Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 228, special Rosh Hashanah edition. This episode was made possible by an anonymous sponsor in the merit that all should find their shidduch right away. An excellent blessing for every individual out there looking for a shidduch that is to come with the easiest way possible, least amount of aggravation. A new year brings new blessings. And overall, let me begin, being that this is a special Rosh Hashanah edition, next week there will not be a program because it's Rosh Hashanah. So in addition to the brachas that I will be giving at the end of this program, it should be Aksiv V'chsim to every individual, B'bon Achayim Ezein Revicha, in children, Parnosa, livelihood, and health, and every aspect of, that we need and beyond our wildest expectations. Before we speak about Rosh Hashanah, being that yesterday, something unique took place, in the last two days actually, I should say, is the Siyum HaRambam. The cycle of learning the Rambam, three chapters a day, came to a conclusion this year on the 20th of El. This would be the end of the 37th cycle from the time the Rebbe instituted this custom back in Tovshin Mem Dalad Pesach. It was Achron Shal Pesach, Tovshin Mem Dalad, the year 1984. And unexpected, the Rebbe began to speak then about learning <coughs> Rambam on a daily basis. And he gave three options. Option one was learning three chapters a day and ending it approximately every year. It's actually around every 11 months. Second is to learn a chapter a day. So, of course, it would be three times as long and therefore end around every three years. And Sefer mitzvahs corresponding with the first option, learning every day three mitzvahs. That allows also, for those that can't learn the whole halachas, the mitzvahs and the sefer mitzvahs of the Rambam, which children do and those that can't do the other shiurim, which also concludes every 11 months. So being as the end of a cycle, I should uh, it, it's worthwhile mentioning. Above all, of course, to take the lesson that it's a good opportunity now, if you haven't done still now, to begin learning the Rambam in one of these three options. Obviously, the three chapters is actually what just began yesterday. And, um, and keeping up with it, besides fulfilling the Rebbe's directive, the Rebbe explained back then, 1984, Pesach, how the uh, learning of the Rambam has the, the, the advantages. Number one, it unites the entire Torah because the Rambam brings Kol Teda Kula, as he writes in his introduction. It unites all Jews through Teda and through learning together. So there's a Achdus Yisrael which, of course, are tremendous steps toward bringing the Geula that Rebbe directly connected it to that. So, in addition, of course, to other reasons that are definitely in, within every type of uh, good thing, especially something coming from the Rebbe, but those are strong, powerful unifications. And, as I said, above all, the Rebbe himself, so-called, made this uh, takone. So just as the Friedrich Rebbe made the takone of chitas, chumish, tilim, and tanya, the Rebbe instituted this takona, this, uh, say takona, this edict of learning the Rambam. I'll just add one more thing since the Rambam beginning and then talk about God. The rest of the, of course, the halachas talk about that actual what God wants of us. The beginning starts, foundation of all foundations and the pillar of all, of all pillars. Vamuda is the pillar of all wisdoms is that no, there's a one cause, there's a one cause that created it all. And the end of the Rambam is, The world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So it ends with Mashiach, and it begins with the basis of Amunah and Yediyah, Yediyah Sashem, Leda, to know, 
which is essentially the essence of all of Teda in general, Exodus specifically. So it's interesting that the Rebbe, there's a Takona learning Tanya, there's learning Maimorim, and so on, and here he took Rambam, and it's a a Rebbe, a Nosi Ador. The Rebbe turned it into a so-called, a Rebbe made this Takona, so it has in it an infusion, not just of learning, but also coming with the whole Gili of Teres Achsidus that the Rabbeim revealed for us. Because the Rambam, even though, ostensibly you can say the Rambam is more of a Baal Nigla. You don't even know if he knew Kabbalah. There's different opinions. Some say he didn't know Kabbalah. Some say he didn't know, but it was secret. Some say he only found out Kabbalah at the end of his, at the end of his life. And you don't see it openly. It's hidden and hinted to, perhaps, in places, including Yusei the Chachmas, which is an acronym for Yud Kei but the Rebbe took Rambam and he explained in a number of places that though the Rambam, many Eden saw the Rambam as almost like two different personalities, one in Halacha and the other Meir Nevuchim, the guard for the perplexed. But as the Rebbe points out, the Alter Rebbe used to learn with the Tzamech Tzedek, Meir Nevuchim, even the guard for the perplexed, according to Chassidus. And you see that Tzamech Tzedek and Sefer Achkira brings things where he, re- where he connects Chassidus with the Meir Nevuchim. And the Rebbe did it even in a broader sense. In a sense, this takana, this edict of learning Rambam becomes part of bringing the Geula, part of the Gili of Chassidus. So even though the Rambam doesn't talk Chassidus in a revealed way, but as the Rebbe in many of his Sikhs, especially the famous Hadran, the famous Siyum that he made, even before this began, this uh, 1984, 1974, Yutas Kislev and the Rebbe, the famous classic Hadran on the Rambam, explaining the Rambam, the beginning of the Rambam and the end of the Rambam, all in the context of how Chassidus looks at it, without using Chassidus of the Shains. So it's just an interesting bridge between Nigla and Chassidus, or you could say Nigla the Teda and Primus Ateda, which joins together as a body and a soul, and is obviously critical toward the coming of Mashiach, because that Mala Arzdeya Sasha, to know God. To know God is not just knowing what God wants of us, also to know Leda. To know God and knowing God is by learning Teda, Primis Teda, Chesidus, and so on. So that's his connection to applied Chesidus. Besides the connection, obviously, that the Rebbe instituted this, so it's something that we all have to embrace. As I said, it's a good opportunity to begin now. And for those that have been learning it, to intensify. And uh, Teda, there's no limit because Aruch Meretz Midr, Yam, Teda is endless, both in Kamus and quantity and also in quality. With that, let us go right into Rosh Hashanah. Next Sunday night will be Rosh Hashanah. Tov Shin Ayintes. Zeh Hayyem Tchilis Masecha. Zekorin Liyem Rishon. As we say in the Tfilis. This is the beginning of your, of your handy, handiwork. Remember, remembering Yem Rishon, the first day of creation. There are a number of my Morich Siddhis on this Pasuk, as well as other Pesukim. And ask the, fam- the fundamental question. Rosh Hashanah was on the sixth day of creation, not the first day. After God created the creations of each of the first five days, then came the sixth day, and the sixth day He created Adam and Eve, Adam and Chav. So why is Rosh Hashanah not celebrated on Chofei El, which is, of course, six days before Rosh Hashanah, which would be middle of this week. And Chassidus cites this Pasuk as part of the explanation. There's two parts of the Pesach. This is the beginning of Masach, of your actions, of your handiwork, of your creation. I remember it to the first day. So is it Zehayim Tchilis Masach? Or is it Zekoron If you say Zehayim, today is the beginning of creation, why is it a memory of the Yem Rish? 
So one of the explanations of Chassidus is the Diyag Zeh. That there's Koi and there's Zeh. Chofei El is the letter Chofei Koi. Koi means like something. Zeh means you're pointing at it. When you look at creation, like everything in life, there's a means and there's an end. Look at a house. You look at a house and someone says, a beautiful mansion has these and these rooms. You can describe it in graphic detail. But the question then someone says, is this the house, the building, the structure? They say, no. This was a structure built for a human being to live in. A great man, for example, a king, built this palace or this mansion for his children. Or anyone built a house for themselves. Then there's also there's the spirit of the essence of the house. The building, the structure itself, and the rooms are only a koi. They're not the, point, the purpose. They're the means. The means to have a beautiful home for those that intend to dwell there. The same thing is the creation of the world. The creation of the world, the six days, was creating the rooms and creating all the sections and departments and everything necessary to lay out a world to, for the crown jewel of creation, the human being, who will lift and elevate the world to fulfill its purpose. And that is the creation of the human being on Rosh Hashanah. So, what, so which is Tchilas Masach? If someone will say, when did the beginning of creation begin? So you say, technically, Koi was Chafayel. But if you want to know the purpose of existence and the realization of its purpose, you say, which is Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah becomes the central point. It's not negating what happened on the 25th of El. It's saying the purpose, the inner meaning of the Chafayel was Rosh Hashanah. So that's why we honor Rosh Hashanah. We don't honor the beginning when you first actually started putting the bricks together and the, and the, and the mortar the bricks and mortar and the wood and whatever is necessary and all the components of building, that would be the first day of When do you honor and celebrate the creations when the building was finished and the purpose of it was fulfilled with Adam and Eve being placed in the Garden of Eden, to serve and to protect. And every year we recreate that. But it's also important to know that it's also as a cardinal Yemenition that we're remembering also, the first day, which is the Chafael, that can also be interpreted in two ways, but we don't have to go into all the intricate details. What is the message to us? Rosh Hashanah is not just a random day that was chosen. On this day is the birthday of the human race. In a broader sense, it's the birthday of creation, of, a very, of existence itself. Every fiber of existence was created on Rosh Hashanah. And we're taught that it's recreated every year and renewed. That is all. And al Tarebe and Simen Yudalad, 14, Epistle 14 in Akedis HaKedish says that before Rosh Hashanah, when Rosh Hashanah comes as the sun sets, the world goes into a comatose state, a faint state, in anticipation of its contract being renewed. And when is it renewed? When we blow Shefer on Rosh Hashanah. Sometimes it says during the davening, which begins already, the night of Rosh Hashanah. There's different places that explain this, the different dimensions to it. But in general, Rosh Hashanah reawakens and renews the contract that literally a new energy, as the Altar Rebbe puts it, an energy that never existed and never will exist. Ir Chodesh enters into existence. What does that mean in practical terms? That we all are literally given a new opportunity, new possibilities. Not just in the general sense that we always have new. Every morning you have something that's new. But a general new energy enters for the year, the annual energy that was designated only for this year. And it will remain with us. And next year we'll be given another Er Chodesh. And the Alter Rebbe explains with this the Posuk that we learn in the Parshas in this in, in Sefer Dvarim. Eini Hashem Lekechem B'Mereish Shashan V'Ad Achrishan in Parshas Ekev. That it says, what's Achrishan? The eyes of God are upon this land. 
from the beginning of the year till the end of the year. If it's from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, then thus, what do you have to say? Beginning, say all the time. Tomit. Tomit ain't Hashem She says, no, because Achis Hashanah means right before Rosh Hashanah. There's a new energy that enters. So that Peter is hinting to this new energy that comes every year. So it's not just the Hashgacha that continues. There's a new dimension, a new, a new level that is revealed and manifests in existence. The lessons are very clear to each one of us. Life can sometimes appear, as the cynics say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we can sometimes feel hopeless because whatever happened yesterday seems to continue repeating itself. Patterns, routines, we're creatures of habit. Comes Rosh Hashanah and says, absolutely not. In addition to what Chassidus says, and the Alter Rebbe elaborates on the Baal Shem Tov's Tehidah, that God renews the world every moment, every second anew. He renews existence every day. And Chassidus emphasizes it means every second. Besides that, there's an additional renewal that happens on Shoshana, which is even more powerful. And that gives us a new lease on life. It means whatever your situation was in the past, it has nothing to do with the future. You'll say, but I'm, I'm the same person, I feel the same. Well, that's the key, to change your attitude. Align yourself to the new energy instead of taking the new energy and fitting it into your old patterns. Align yourself by doing what? Suspending your cynicism, suspending your skepticism, suspending your past resignations and hopelessness or whatever other feelings that you may have and despondencies and say, you know what, New Rosh Hashanah is coming in. Chassidus talks about it. Kabbalah talks about it. The Taylor talks about it. If the Rosh Hashanah is anything, it's that. And I'm going to plug in, allow myself to try to receive that. The challenge will be is how do you integrate it into a life of routines and a life of all these different uh, past patterns and so on. That's a challenge. But that doesn't mean we don't have the opportunity. We absolutely do. And that lesson alone is a life, uh, an um, invaluable lifetime lesson because it teaches us the key message to everything is that you are capable of doing anything you set your mind. And the past does not necessarily have to haunt the present and the future. Okay. We're also in the last week of the Shiva de Nechemta. So this last week goes into, of course, into Rosh Hashanah. And this is the final step that prepares us with simcha and joy. You know, till now it was consolation. Then we spoke about the consolation that comes with light. Then comes the dimension of joy, of simcha, that comes into Rosh Hashanah. The Rebbe speaks about, I remember, Tav Shem Amalaf. 1981, it was 1980, uh, 1980 Tov Shemamal would be 1980. So Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe spoke then a lot about Simcha. What was the Simcha? That idea that usually Rosh Hashanah is more day of awe, talks also that, Yom Tov, that, uh, that Shabbos is also Simcha. But Rosh Hashanah, you don't usually hear the word Simcha. And the Rebbe spoke then from the Maimon, Tov Shem Gimel, Actually, the Rebbe edited that, Rosh Hashanah Sicha, even though it was already published as a Hanukkah Bilti Muga. I remember writing the Sicha, and we published it, a beautiful Sicha. It was about Hakel that year, a lot of interesting things. And then the Rebbe, after the printed Sicha came out, the Rebbe actually edited it on the printed Kuntras, which was very rare. And there was a lot of focus on the Simcha of Rosh Hashanah, which is also one of the customs that Rebbe instituted based on the, the Psukim in, in Nach, that we should also send gifts <coughs> and be misameach, those that need food and, and gifts and matonis for the Yom Tevim. 
Okay. Let us now go to a question that's really relevant. Obviously, we're going into the Yom Naroyim Tishrei, and the whole month of El says in Sfodim, it says in Sfodim, in Poskim say that even those that, those that learn Torah all the time, on Yom El, they would take off some time from learning, learn, from learning and add in davening. Because El is a month of Tachnunim, where we pray and beseech God for forgiveness, as Moshe Rabbeinu did, recreating what Moshe Rabbeinu did when he went up on the Mount Sinai and spent 40 and then another 40, 80 days, and especially during the month of El, coming down Yom Kippur with the second luchas, with forgiveness. So it's a special month for additional prayers, which is also, of course, connected to the fact that we start saying slichas, as we did last night. And as far as they say, the whole month of El, Slichus is invoking the the forgiveness for the forgiveness supplications for forgiveness from the Ebrishtim. and it begins to have that feel of the Yom Neroim, the davening of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So davening plays a prominent role, as I've talked about many times. Davening, of, unfortunately, however, has become a lost art for many of us. Whatever the reasons are, we've discussed that in the past. So the question that's asked here: standing in the month. Of El, when we increase in prayer, what can we practically do to, to what can we practically do to pray a bit better? Okay. Before I continue, I want to give some cross-referencing, which I often do. <clears throat> I apologize for my uh, hoarseness. Um, so, as you know, that we have, of course, a great resource in my life. So this, my life so this applied, and you can find that at meaningfullife.com/slash/my-life. There, you can submit an anonymous and confidential question or comment. There you can also find the archives of all previous episodes, which are all time-stamped on the YouTube version. So I want to give you a few core references to what I've spoken about till now, and that is the Rambam study. So I spoke about Rambam in episodes 47 and 111. Chof El and Rosh Hashanah in episodes 35 and 83. And the Shiva the Nechemta, the order that we spoke about in the, in the episodes, previous six episodes, 222 through 227. Now about the month of El and prayer, so Tefillah we've spoken about a number of times, but it deserves more and more, and I will speak, continue to speak about it. I have a whole bunch of questions that have come in, and I just scheduled where to fit it in, but I will say a few words right now. But the episodes where it's been discussed more at length, 18, 19, and 20, 45, 140, 165, 199 through 201, and 203. So, one specific thing to say is this, key thing to always remember. Davening, besides what we daven and what we say, is primarily Avedah Shebelev. Ezeh Avedah Shebelev, the Gemara says. What's the service of the heart? How do you emotionally express? That's davening. Davening is emotional expression. Contrast that with Teda. Teda is cognitive. It's to learn. Madam to teach and to learn. There is an Indian of learning, of saying Chumash, even if even if you don't understand it, but obviously ultimate of Teda is understanding. So davening is an emotional communication, you can say emotional intelligence, and learning is cognitive intelligence, using your mind and understanding what God, what God is and what God wants of us. And, and, uh, but what is a relationship without emotions? That's understanding. A relationship with emotions is the key to a relationship because it creates a connection. 
So the general gist of it is that davening means you're connecting to something that is beyond you, that's greater than you, the transcendent, and above all, what we call the Rebbein the Eibishter. Why did I say all the other words? Because sometimes the word God is a very vague word, and what does it mean? The key thing to remember is Mispal Ladaza Hatinuk was considered a virtue. Sometimes we dive just like a child. You ask God for whatever it is. You speak to him like you speak to a father. So there's the, com- the concept of Bakashas Srochov, which most people can understand. Asking God for what you need. You want health, livelihood, children, Shalom Bayis, all the other gifts and necessities in life. But feel it goes much deeper than that. That part, I don't think you need an explanation. Ask, ask away. That's exactly what Rosh Hashanah, we ask for Bakoshis, Tzrochov, Gashmi, even Gashmi is the physical things as the Rebbe brings from the Agos Maimonis. Rosh Hashanah is not just about Ruchnis, but Gashmi is the things. What Chassidus introduces, to serve God, is that it's more than just asking your needs, which is the basic mitzvah of davening. It's also connecting. That's why it's so vital to learn chassidus to be able to connect. How do you connect to a God that you don't see, that you don't feel, that you don't hear? Chassidus teaches you what is this God like or how God manifests. So emoting to God is like having a connection where you're speaking in an emotional way, just like you would speak to someone you love. But because the person that you love is for you, it's easier to do. You just sit down and speak to them. Even though, frankly, it also takes work and maturity and development to develop an emotional way of emotional intelligence and emotional mature way to communicate. But you have something to talk, you have something tangible to relate to. When it comes to the Abishti, you're relating to something that's greater than we are and will always remain greater. And as such, it's not something that's your equal. And yet Hashem says, I've created you in my image. I've created you with with faculties that mirror my own. God manifests himself in faculties, and the Shtal Shulmahem from that evolved our faculties. So each one of us have to find your own little emotional way. I say little, meaning relative to each of us. Your own emotional way to connect. And it doesn't have to be necessary for asking something specific. Just a connection to something that is not of the material world. That's exactly what Eberstadt is about. Something greater than you are. Not something that is unequal to you. But you still can emote and connect with it because it's part of you. And it's within you, which is our neshama. So you could really say davening is letting your neshama speak to the source of your soul. So you need to be soulful. And in that sense, emotionally connected with your soulful, with the soulfulness within you. And that is essentially what real davening is. When chassidim would daven for hours, and they learn chassidus first, they would relate to the divine that's beyond existence. We all know what it means to go shopping and to walk down the streets and to fulfill our immediate needs and indulge, even things that are permitted. But the experience of something that's beyond existence, which is essentially what all davening is about, that's the key. That's what you have to focus on. What is beyond? And everyone has their their beyond in their own way. Especially Rosh Hashanah. Shana, we have a day where we spend more time in that shul, Yom Kippur even more so. We'll talk about that when we speak before Yom Kippur. But Rosh Hashanah is an excellent time to focus on this. And again, it's not about quantity, it's quality. So I've talked about that. Obviously, you could read it all, all the davening, and it's, uh, it's a mitzvah to daven, we daven. But the chazan davens as well. And it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to focus qualitatively, equally, on all tefillahs. So choose a few that speak to you. Speak from your heart. 
shed away all, as I said earlier, the cynicism and all the jadedness and everything else that we've assumed, and just be sincere, pure. That is the essence of a real emotional connection between you and Hashem. Obviously, there's much more to be said, but I just wanted to answer that question because it came in just a few weeks ago. I thought it's appropriate for the time in which we are in. Next question. These are questions that have come in over time, and I thought it's appropriate, even though it's a special Rosh Hashanah edition, but Rosh Hashanah really covers everything because it's about correcting the past and preparing for the new year. So anything we talk about really fits in. So here are a few questions, and please, if, you have, if you've submitted questions, don't feel perturbed or in any way down that I've not answered them yet. I will address them. It's just a matter of, of catching up because there's so many that come in all the time. Okay. So now, um, question. Should I be concerned about speaking Lashon Hara with my mentor? When I'm working through with my mentor, the hurt I've experienced at the hands of another seems that Lashon Hara is inevitable. More specifically, I'm trying to move on after being hurt. I tell myself it is from Hashem, not from my fellow. I try to accept, I make all the excuses for the other person in my mind. However, I still, fe- I still feel that instead of keeping it bottled in me, if I would share it or unload it to the right person whose opinion I value, I can quicker forget, forgive, and move on. I feel a very strong need or desire to unload. On the other hand, I feel it is Lush and Hara. What do you think? P.S. It is of no use to tell the other person or persons in case you want to tell me that. I know that solution... I know the solution is I just have to learn to converse less with them. Hatzloch and thanks. Okay. I just read it exactly as it was written. So firstly, in episode 208, I spoke about something similar. That how could we correct things if we don't speak Lush, if, if How could we address things and in a good way if there isn't going to be an element of Lashon Hara when you talk about negative things that have happened to you by others. And also see episode 107, where I also spoke about Lashon Hara. So a very good question, a very obvious question. But the answer is also quite obvious. And that is, the Tehidah says, Aseh L'charav. The Tehidah says, speak to a mentor. Koyin Hashem B'yamecha. Mashpim. Whatever term you want to use. It's inevitable when you speak to them, you're going to speak, and let's say, you speak openly, confidentially about something that happened. So, number one, you don't have to use, so use the person's name. You could say, this and this happened to me, without using a name, if you want to be extremely sensitive. Secondly, one could argue that even if you use a name, and it's completely for healing purposes, it would be like going to a doctor, and the doctor says, you, got, uh, you, got a, uh, you were contagious to something, so you caught a disease from someone else. Who was the person? It's not Lashon Could Why? Because it's a healing situation for you and protect others, and we need to know. This doesn't mean it has to be advertised and put into headlines. So Lashon Hara has its halachas. But Lashon Hara does not include, for example, going to a policeman and telling them that someone's a redif running around with a knife. It's not really relevant to this discussion. And my point I just want to make is Lashon Hara is not some blanket thing. You can't talk, say anything negative. It all depends what the intention is and why you're speaking. So you can make the argument, if, even if you mention a name, and again, you could argue that don't mention the name, that would be the best solution, that you're talking purely about you. 
and you're saying something happened to me, this and this person did something to me, my brother, my sister, a friend, a stranger, and I really want to work it through. A good mashpian rov understands confidentiality, understand this is not some type of bad-mouthing and something that will be shared to others, etc., etc. So therefore, you can make the very strong case that very simple, speaking to mashpia does not apply these issues. Now, this obviously is all based on that you can't just free yourself from it and move on. If indeed, sometimes we do need to speak, like the, like the Pesach says, a person is concerned they should speak, one of the opinions, <coughs> and as the Rebbe Marash explains, by speaking, it fulfills the second opinion, which means that you free yourself of it. So right there, according to the types to speak, what happens if the concern is about what else someone else did to you? And it says, means because there's no choice, you have to speak. In many cases, that does help. And it's not a concern because we're not talking of Lashon Hara intentions, not Lashon Hara at all. You're not sitting in Tommy to talk about bad-mouthing someone else. You're talking about how you can grow and heal from the situation. And if you avoid names, in general, I don't think there's a question altogether. Okay. Next question. For the sake of Shalom bias, should I do something my spouse prefers that I would normally refrain from doing? Okay, this is also very relevant to this holiday season, because many people have different customs. There are many people who are, want to be more stringent, and sometimes their spouse has a different attitude. Less so. And you want to have Shalom bias. What happens if Shalom bias clashes with your standards? You can also work the other way around. The other person is far more stringent, and you're not so. There are two shalom bias. So, not sure how to best explain the question or if it has already been addressed. Spouses often come from different backgrounds. Even if they, they most often have different things each one enjoys for pleasure, and they would love to share their enjoyment with the other spouse, for the sake of shalom bias, should, let's say, the man join his wife in doing something he would normally refrain from doing. For example, TV shows. Or, giving, or, or going out to a theater. Things that are not necessarily usr halachically. Okay, so here's more, even more explicit. But the question can be applied even if it's not dealing with situations like that. First of all, who says that's not usr halachically? Let me just put it that way. But the question can be applied to things that may be questionable halachically, but even better, things that are not questionable. But it's not your standard. So firstly, I did speak about it, actually, in episodes two. Well, I spoke about Shalom Bayez, and I touched about this. So the episodes are 2, 12, 50, 60, and 141. Sometimes I amaze myself, over all these 227 episodes, clearly we've talked about quite a number of topics. Okay. To complement whatever I said there, and we can, you can go back to listen to that. As I said, it's all e- easily accessible. I'll, I will say the following. Sholem bias obviously is the assad of everything. The Rambam, the end of Hilchas Chanukah, says clearly that Sholem bias, Sholem is Godlmah, is greater than everything. The entire Torah was given only to bring Sholem into the world. And that's why when it comes to a choice, whether Sholem bias, meaning made a Shabbos, which is lighting candles, you only have money to light a candle for Shabbos or light a candle for Chanukah. Chanukah is Pesumanisa. Publicizing God's miracle. Shabbos, Neiris Shabbos is for Shalom Bayis. So Shalom Bayis precedes everything else. And that's why the Abishta said, erase my name in the laws of Saita to preserve Shalom Bayis between husband and wife. These are tremendous, awesome words. Because it tells you, God is saying, erase my name. Do not use me 
in between husband and wife. On the other hand, we know clearly that the Tater says, follow my ways and you'll have Shalom eyes. So how do you reconcile that? So the answer is, it's case by case and you don't have a black and white answer. Because the fact of the matter is, people are different temperaments. So we're not talking about something here that's a mitzvah to do or forbidden to do. There, I would not talk about that in any way that you should do something that's forbidden for Shalom bias. Even though, frankly, speaking to your Mashpi and Rav, there may be some loopholes, there may be certain corners that can be cut for the reason of Shalom bias, and you have to be clear it's for that reason. But it's not something in a public forum to, for many people listening to this, that one size fits all to make such a blanket statement. So that you'd need to go speak to someone. If there's an issue, a lochic issue between husband and wife, talk to Mashpia Rav, and a Mashpia, or Rav, of course. Why? Because they can help them determine that maybe, yes, in these situations, either they'll give you a loophole or they'll say, don't ask this question and do as you understand better. Because Shalom Bayis is the biggest mitzvah of them all. If there's no Shalom Bayis, everything else falls. But that doesn't mean everything goes. God forbid if one couple, spouse, wants to, so even Shalom Bayis would be uh, compromised as a result of that. But we're talking about obviously things that are not that level. Now things that are not halachic, meaning black and white halacha, there it's really a matter of common sense. And again, using a mashpia would be very helpful. Because you don't want personal interests. Because even people are sometimes very frum. It's not always the frumkite. It's their, that's their comfort zone. Shalom bias versus your comfort zone or shalom bias versus your hidurim. So comfort zone and hidurim don't always go hand in hand. I mean, I, I should correct myself. They go in and end, but it could be driven by comfort zone, not so much driven by because you're closer to God. That's why it's very important to have a third party that can help resolve if there's indeed such a question. Overall, and this is the most important thing, in a loving relationship between husband and wife with this trust and there's a foundational connection, you generally can work things through. And yes, people overlook certain things. It's not about you and what you care about. That's the most important thing. You want to do what's right, not what makes you feel better. And that's where people are often trapped in these type of questions. That's why it's very hard to make that own judgment. You'll say, I'm not comfortable with that. And the spouse wants that, prefers that. But who says which one is right here? So you'll say, I'm more from. My wife is not, or my husband is not so from. Who decided that? Maybe they're firmer than you are. Maybe just simply a preference. So... On the other hand, the other spouse, if they love, they will also compromise and sometimes yield to the spouse. I think it's a matter of really the relationship. A good relationship, you address issues like this. It doesn't have to be I'm right or you're right. It has to be addressing it. Each one is sensitive to the other. Now, if you say to me, my spouse is inflexible. She or he wants to do something, and if I don't do it, it's just going to create fights and wars. So if they're in that type of state, then maybe sometimes you do mavata, you are, you compromise and you do it. If it's something that may spill over in the whole relationship, that your wife or your spouse, I should say, or your wife or your husband are always that way, and constantly, you have to constantly be compromising, that may need more talking to somebody about. That's why I can't give you one answer. Each situation is different. I would hope and want to believe that a couple can speak about it, and it's not a matter of this time we'll do it your way, this way time. Your, this time we'll do it your way, next time we'll do it the other way. 
It's a matter of a communication where you see what the other person can tolerate, what they can't tolerate, how important it is, how less important. And that's a key thing in a relationship is realizing what's, where to fight, where to choose your battles, what's important and what's less important. And you always need to have a third party when there's a, when there's a doubt because it's very hard to make this decision yourself. Now, if you can work it out yourselves, great. But if there's an issue where one spouse is either very instringent, in, in, uh, in, um, inflexible is the word I was looking for, and the other part, uh, so you have to see whether it's something you can give into and not make a whole fight about it. Because if both get to dig in, obviously you will have problems. So coming into the Yom Tevim, it's a good opportunity to step back and look at your own approach to things. Sometimes our stubbornness, our pride, our egos get in the way. And it's a good opportunity to also sit down with your spouse and talk about it. Not even something specific. I would even suggest talking about it when things are not when there's no conflict, when there's no issue. Because then you're talking in peaceful time and you're just talking in a way that both will not, the spouses will not begin to get up in arms and feel attacked and, and feel defensive. So it's a good mood, it's a good idea to just sit down and talk. We know there's the custom before Rosh Hashanah, the Yontif would begin, the Rabbeim would go in and wish their wives and the Rebetzins a good Yontif and a good Yod. The Rebbe told it, so it's clearly a directive to all of us. So it's a good opportunity. I don't mean necessarily that moment before Rosh Hashanah, but in general, using this period in time to have this type of sensitive conversation and discuss it and see all the angles of it. Without any personal attacks, you can, get a, you can go very far. And it could help preempt a lot of issues that come up later. Next question. Missed childhood. Does the Tate expect the same from people regardless of their vital childhood experiences? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, you say all the time we have a Tate, quote unquote. According to the Tate, the first 20 years of a human is designated to build a strong person with a healthy mind to prepare him for Avedis Hashem, serving God. Up to age 13, he or girl, she, is not at 12, not ob is not obligated to keep mitzvahs. He's only accountable from age 20. I'm not going to go into the details. What do you mean by that? You mean the, about ancient punishment? My question is, what is one's responsibility if his, child, if his childhood wasn't, to put it mildly, very healthy? An upbringing that caused mental, moral, and relationship hardships. Bottom line, a painful, sad, embarrassing, and confusing laundry list. The hardships and the bad religious memories make serving God, Vedas Hashem, more difficult. Does the Tata expect... The same from humans, regardless of their vital childhood experience. Another question. In the community I was raised... You know, let me do with this question, then we'll go to the other question. Yeah. I think it's easier to do. So, does the Tate expect... The answer is very straightforward. No, the Tate does not expect the same demands of each person. The first expression, one of the most popular and familiar statements that ever would make. The Ebishter does not ask a person to accept what they're capable of. One person is capable of one thing. It would be cruel to expect them to do something, someone else. One person can lift 200 pounds. Another person can only lift 100 pounds. So to expect someone who can lift 100 pounds to lift 200 doesn't make any sense. You created me this way. We're not talking about if you were able and you're not doing it. We're talking about you're not capable. God does not come with kindness and complaints to people for things they're not capable of. 
So absolutely your life conditions, including growing up in home that was abusive or dysfunctional, and childhood formative years left a person with less, let's call it resources, obviously God takes that into account. That's why we say, everyone's ma'id, all your might is different. It all depends who you are. For one person, learning something has a good mind to learn something quickly is easy for them. For another person, it takes longer. They're simply, their mind is a, a different structure. The same thing, each one of us have our strengths and our weaknesses. However, here's the other side of the coin. We don't want to start self-pitying ourselves and finding excuses and saying, this happened to me and therefore I don't have to live up to higher expectations. Of yourself, you should be demanding the most. You don't want to become a victim mentality that since I grew up in such and such a home, as you describe, how painful it is, you want to build and say, let me learn from what happened and become a stronger person. That's why it's very important to be careful. So from God's eyes, God will know, knows very well. You talk about Teda. Teda and Hashem, right. Teda expect. Teda and neighbors to yes, the same thing. That God's expectations are completely understanding. He knows what's in our hearts, knows what we went through, and obviously takes that into consideration. Plus, the added compassion that the Eberster has for somebody who is a, a person who doesn't, who has, was given, was given a lesser chance. On the other hand, you have to also remember the Eberster put you in a situation like that. You have strengths that you don't even know you have, or else you wouldn't have been put there. So we have to know to keep these two things in mind. Of ourselves, we have to always expect and say, you know what? I will work hard to compensate for what I didn't have and build even a better, stronger life. If you actually build it, don't compare you to anyone else. It's not, you're not going to be measured, as the famous story of Rabzusha. You'll be asked, did you accomplish what you were able to accomplish, not what someone else? So if you're talking about comparing to someone else, everybody's a different story. But in your own self, you don't want to become and look at yourself as someone that says, oh, I don't really need to do too much because I was wounded or scarred or hurt. You want to say, let me use that as an opportunity and a catalyst to grow even more. And that too gives given strength. And everything is taken into consideration. So don't be concerned about God judging or the tater's expectations. Be concerned of whether you're filled with living up to your greatest potential. And I should add, it may, it may have come out across the wrong way, the tater's expectations is the best expectations for you. Recognizing your limits, recognizing what you've gone through, but still giving you the strength to overcome any challenge and to become a stronger person for it. As they were oppressed in direct proportion to that, they flourished and thrived. Why? You could say, listen, they were under oppression. What do you want from them? Hard labor under Pharaoh, the cruelty that they endured. So have Rahmanas on them. And yet they grew because they grew through their oppression. At the same time, of course, God had Rahmanas. So we have to know how to balance that it should not end up being in a, a situation where you are undercutting yourself because of what you've suffered. You don't want to undermine your own potential. And yet, we need to know that, yes, everything that you've gone through is watched and seen, and the right rahmanas and the right strengths are given to you. As a matter of fact, God will compensate and give you even more strengths in other areas to be able to deal with the shortcomings 
or the or the <clears throat> lost opportunities that you may have had due to the uh, a, 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 dis- a dysfunctional childhood. Okay. Um, where are we? Next question in that regard. So the same person wrote another question, which is: Does is there any value in rigidly doing mitzvahs? I wrote, even if it does not refine me and help me personally grow. In the community I was raised, I was taught a Torah, I was taught a Torah that requires rigid following of mitzvahs, learning Torah, going to minyan, lip service, three times a day. Mostly out of fear of punishment or to get reward, and with no, but with no real feelings. From your classes, books, and guides, I'm getting the sense on how the Torah is relevant to my personal growth. But I'm still having a hard time changing my perspective of Torah and believe and belief that I'm doing a mitzvah when I work on myself. It's not easy to change a perspective I was taught for so many years. Also, according to Chassidus, a person connects to Atzmos only when he's Mekai mitzvahs or learns Torah. When he performs mitzvahs or learns Torah. If I remember correctly in Lekut Burim. The Friedrich Rebbe says that keeping mitzvahs are way more important than refining the mitzvahs. Thank you so much for all your hard work you do for the public. Okay, very good question. I'm sure I've addressed this topic. Chassidus talks about this. Let's start with the bottom line. The bottom line is action. The Hebrew wants our actions. To sit and pontificate with all the deep kavanas and spiritual intentions and spiritual levels is not the kavanah, is action. In this world, in this physical world, to make change means action. You go into someone, they say to you, I, you know, for an investment, and they say, I believe everything you're doing, it's really great, I love it, I'll share it with my friends, but they're not ready to write a check and act and do something, then, they, then it's all words. And yet, we said, we need also Talmud on the contrary. Talmud is greater because it brings also to action, but what does Talmud add? It's informed action. It's directed action. It's action with intelligence. Action that's unguided by intelligence, by Taylor's words, can be very, can be very, can be very, uh, what's the word I want to use? Very uh, irresponsible. You can make mistakes. You need to be, that's why we get education. We don't just teach our children, hey, do mitzvahs, do mitzvahs. We teach them. Pops Chumash, Mishnah, Gemara, Halacha, Shulchan why? Because Torah creates informed action. It illuminates. Torah maisim tevim. It makes the maisim tevim umayirim, as Chassidus says. It takes an action and gives it vitality and life and primus. And makes sure that mitzvahs are not done by rote. So some were to say, is it better to learn and not do mitzvahs and know everything, all the kavanas, or act and not have Torah? Obviously, a maisim That goes without saying. Better by rote than not doing it on the other hand, mechanical mitzvahs, mechanical Judaism, can leave a person extremely hollow and empty. And most importantly, it's a boireik, it's a void and vacuum that can create a lot of problems. Comes Tayra and says, no, I want your kavona. Tefillah davening without kavona is like a body without a soul. So a soul without a body has no grounding. But a body without a soul is lifeless, is a corpse, God forbid. Now there are some mitzvahs that, kavonika, that you need kavona is leikuva. You must have kavona. Without the kavana, it's, it's lifeless. Many mitzvahs don't need kavana. With kavana, they're better. Tzedakah is the classic example of a mitzvah even without any kavana. Even if you have negative kavana, 
Even if you lose a penny in the street, a coin in the street, and it's found by someone, and they use it, even if you would say, you would know that and say, no, I don't want to give it, I want the money back, you're still considered doing the mitzvah because the action was fulfilled, the person was helped. If you do it with good kavana, you do it with Sefer Panam Yofis and all the levels, the Maimonides, the Rambam spells out, enumerates, then it's even deeper. Nasa v'nishma. They said Nasa first, we need the Kabbalah sale doing. So it's not a contradiction in what you learned. However, if it stays there, it's exactly like that. It'll be done for a reward or for a fear of punishment or because it's your comfort zone or it's a cultural thing and so on and so forth. Coming to the Yom Tevim, this is so vital. To know that we want to infuse it with a primis, with a kavana, with a neshama. So to t- say that in any way compromises the, 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 the doing it action, the action, no, maesuik is paramount, action is paramount. The ideas of bringing them to personal growth, Chassidus teaches how you are refined by the mitzvahs. The tzarev hasabrias is an additional point that says, because these are mitzvahs that God gave us. And God created the machine called life, called you. And here's the operator's manual, the Torah, and says, if you do these things, you're living a life aligned with your creator and how the cosmic architect and engineer wants you to be, of course, make you a better person. And if you do something contrary, it, it can cause da- damage. So the Torah tells us what are the things that make you a healthier person, physically and spiritually, and what makes you less healthy, God forbid, physically and spiritually. But... There are many situations where we, not, we don't know it yet. Like you go to a doctor, the doctor tells you to do something, exercise or take an aspirin or take a medication. You may not understand how it works, but it's still the action is most important, even before you understand. Understanding and seeing how it impacts you creates a whole different experience of Judaism. You see Judaism is part of you. And especially when you look at other things in your life that are relevant, that you're passionate and excited about, and Torah ends up being just by rote, you tell me, where your excitement is going to be invested in passion. So I believe that addresses both sides of it. Yes, absolutely, atzmus is reached through a mitzvah. Mitzvah, has a famous sikhim, Teir Shalom. God wants your mitzvah. But he wants also that you want to relate to it as much as possible. That's called the giluyim that come together with it. Is it greater than refining the midas? Well, yeah, if a person is just doing bir and First of all, Bidra Midas is also a mitzvah. Being a refined person, behaving in the ways that are refined. There's mitzvahs that talk about this. Mitzvahs ben Adam l'chavere. Hillel says the whole Torah is don't do unto others that you don't want done to yourself. That you could say is refining of your Midas. If Bidra Midas replaces a mitzvah, no, I would say it's hand in hand. Mitzvahs come to be mevara the Midas. And Bidra Midas is part of the mitzvahs. If someone says, I'm just working on the humanitarian side, I'm just being more ethical, and they don't neglect the mitzvah part, that's what the Greeks said. They don't have a problem with ethics. They have a problem that's connected with God. And much more can be said on this, but let's move on. Let me do a follow-up, some follow-up. Chassidus, my life essays, follow-up. So first of all, thank you from last week. This is not a question, I'm not asking a question, I just wanted to say thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for the clarity that you give us, the peace of mind, the menuchas hanefesh, the care that you invest into the answers that you guide us with. I just wanted to say thanks you for answering my questions. P.S. I was the one that asked about my mitzvahs counting as a ger, convert, thank you. That was last week's episode. 
very kind of you, and I and I am very touched by that. And may you and everyone be blessed with the good. I see this as a a, a mutual symbiotic relationship. Your questions, your comments, um, empower me, and I hope I help empower you, and all of us together, do our part in spreading the chesedus to the outskirts, to the widest in the widest possible way to bring the geula. A follow-up to religious OCD, which was last week's episode as well. Yeah. So there, I'm not going to repeat what I discussed then, but there were a bunch of comments that came in, so I'll just read them quickly. Anyone who has lived with someone with or has OC disorder, that's an obsessive-compulsive disorder, for them there's no joy in the mitzvahs. There's no ivduas Hashem b'simcha, serving God with joy for the person or their family. Just 24-7 made-up rules that have nothing to do with halacha. Definitely way beyond being careful. Quote-unquote. The big problem is that that this type of, this ill one, I'm sorry, the ill one, the problem is that the ill person has very little self-awareness and genuinely thinks they are being very holy. A tragedy for all. Yep. Unfortunately, and addresses itself up in the garments of religion. So this goes contrary to what I said before, because there, but Kabbalah sale, Kabbalah sale, but not OCD making you and everybody crazy for your obsessions that have nothing to do with the Abishter. It's to do with your own issues, your own disorder. But it's very hard for a person to see that because they think this is what God wants, and that's that. Well, God wants above all Jews to have bittel and listen to Arov and listen to Mashpia. And if they tell you, don't do something, listen to them. And if you say, I know better than them, then you tell me whether you're doing what the Abishta wants or what you want. Two, this balance between having obsessive-compulsive tendencies when it comes to Hidra Mitzvah needs to be addressed in the from community. Okay, we're doing that. Three, a great way to tell would be, meaning distinguishing between Hidra Mitzvah and OCD, a great will to tell would be if resisting the ritual behavior causes a feeling of anxiety, emotional distress, and the individual can't continue to his next task until he, she, solved or engaged in the behavior. It would probably be considered a compulsion ritual. That's a good, that's a good litmus test, excuse me. Additionally, trying to solve if your thoughts, urges, sensations, or obsessions or not can lead to an endless pattern of rumination by comparing and analyzing and trying to solve an unsolvable problem. Another great misconception with this disorder might be that the thoughts mean something about the individual or his level of observance raising the question, what if it's not OCD? However, that has never happened, nor would it bother you if it wasn't OCD. Okay, another comment. Yes, this OCD behavior happens to some Bali Shuva, me included. It took me years to become normal, Baruch Hashem. You can see when someone is very meticulous in some mitzvahs and not in shalom bias or joy in the house, that's a good sign that it's an OCD thing and not <clears throat> about mitzvahs and God. Because the big mitzvah of shalom bias, they're not doing. They're, they're not selling the OCD. Another comment. With, the, with an OCD diagnosis, with an OC diagnosis has it severely, some may actually be happy people that need their questions answered with patience and dignity. Not sure what this person is writing. Eshatchen writes, 
As a shatran, I always tell my clients that they should take the prospects that I suggest. When they say they want to do the mitzvah with the greatest hidr, I always tell them hidr is good, but not when it becomes compulsive. And finally, one more comment. First of all, using the term obsessive-compulsive is extreme. This, that is a devastating psychiatric condition, which is awful. Just say that it's obsessive or anything, but don't call it OCD. Okay, I think I shared enough about that. Make a little hefsik. Chassidus question, which is a Rosh Hashanah-related question. <clears throat> what does it mean that we need to stimulate God's desire to recreate existence on Rosh Hashanah? If we did nothing, would the world cease to be? Okay, to elaborate a bit, we're taught in the Maimori Chassidus that Rosh Hashanah, the whole world goes back, especially in the Maimorim, I mentioned before, Geras HaKedish Yudalad, but in the Maimorim of Sidr, the Mitla Rebbe, Sidr, which is the Maimorim of the Alta Rebbe that the Mitla Rebbe wrote and gathered together and published, he says that everything goes Chazel Kadmusan. The Rebbe would quote this almost every year. The world goes back to its original primordial state, only to be renewed through Tkir Shefer, through Aravedah. So that's why it's so important for us to stimulate what we call Chassidus calls, Malchusei Baratzen Kibla Aleyam. That's not Chassidus, that's the expression. Malchusei Baratzen Kibla We have to crown the king, Tam Lechuni Aleichem. We crown God as king, and that awakens the desire of God to be king over us and to renew the world and us for a new year. Existence anew. So it means that it, we have to stimulate this existence. So what would happen, he's asking, this person is asking, he or she, if we did nothing, would the world cease to be? So first of all, the most, this question I remember asking as a kid, first time I heard these ideas, and the first answer always you get is, there's always someone in the world, Sadiq Yusei Elam, at least one person that's not going to give up and will do something to, to make sure that God is stimul- to stimulate God's desire. Hypothetically, if there wasn't such a person, you could say hypothetically, if there was no such person, the existence would cease to be. Yeah, because God created the world for tzaddik, for us to do what God wants. And therefore, there's always going to be someone doing God's will some way. And it's inevitable. Even if one person is not doing it this moment, someone else is. But in a deeper and broader way, you may be familiar with what this talks about. I spoke about it, I think, months ago. It's from the Maimorim of Kamayim Aponim, the Aponim from the Mitla Alta Rebbe, Tovkuf Samach Vov. Tovkuf Samach. Tovkuf Samach Hey, maybe. Maybe Tovkuf Samach Hey. And later cited in the Maimorim, Tovrei Samach Gimel and Tovshin Gimel from the Rebbe Rashab and the Friedrich Rebbe, respectively, the idea of Halos Man Menei Bey. Since all of existence is bit dependent, with who did he consult the neshamas of tzaddikim to create? But they're not tzaddikim yet. Because it's referring to God, envisioning the tzaddikim that will do mitzvahs, that will in turn stimulate God's wish and will to create. So how did that happen before creation? So it says, that within God, he himself stimulated that envision. He envisioned it, that itself was like a type of stimulating within himself. And from then on, comes through Aved. So you see that there is that concept of it being stimulated, even though there's no one there technically. So if hypothetically there was a situation, just like God envisioned initially, he's always envisioning this. So in addition to what I said before, that there's always going to be at least one person, and I would say even more, every Jew in one way has a seder, a moment of a seder, tshuva. We're told this many times. That's why 
Someone says, I'm going to betroth, marry a person, a woman, on the condition that I'm a tzaddik. So you can say, one second, the person's not a tzaddik. It's considered a condition, because every Jew, maybe he did tshuva. And the Rebbe goes further, every Jew definitely did tshuva, at least for a moment. And that's why it's considered a tzaddik, so the condition is condition. If he said, for example, I'm Kaddish Isha, going to betroth a woman, um, on the condition that I'm going to jump up 500 feet, or I'm not going to eat for seven days, for, te- for, for, for a drink for seven days, or eat beyond that, that's not possible. So it's not considered a condition because it's not possible. So we see from this that there's no such thing as someone not doing truth. So that always is part of the picture, and plus God envisioning, you understand that this process is something that is really an inevitability. Regardless, there's a bigger question you can but bigger. There's another question you could ask. What happens before the Hesedus? We said the world goes back to its primordial state. So Chesedus says that the Chais comes from Chetzenius Harotzen. Chetzenius Chais. It's like God, it's like so-called an automatic pilot, auto, autopilot, until we renew it. But the Rebbe, then the question is asked, on Shabbos, same question is asked. Ve'echul HaShamayim, existence. God, the energy of existence returns to its source. So it says there it comes from Primis Achais. And the Rebbe has a famous Sikha in Chelik Tes, Lukutis What happens when Shabbos and Rosh Hashanah come together? And there he answers that you have the Primis of the Chetzenis, the Chetzenis of the Primis. You can look it up. It's not really the question. I just wanted to throw that into the equation that it also adds the understanding that there's always going to be a Chais because that's God's commitment. And he knows for sure that, like we say about the Gula, that it's the safe Galusan. Jews will definitely guaranteed us, promised us, assured us that at the end of days, Jews will ultimately do tshuva and they will have the gu'ula. So all this is part of the bigger equation. Let's do the three essays, which we're customary to do, of the fourth essay, annual essay contest. Essay number one is Overcoming Insecurity by Avram Stein, age 18, Stony Brook, New York, a student in Chevet Terezal. Okay. Insecurity is a big challenge today. It is common, and I have seen it in many people, including in my friends and myself. People will always worry about what others are thinking or saying about them. It goes on to dissect two parts to insecurity. One part is being insecure about who you are and what you have to offer. The other part is being insecure about your relationship with others. The main source of insecurity I will be addressing is being insecure about yourself. As that, as that can also be a form of spiritual insecurity and can help with curing physical insecurities, as seen in the following Sikha, Sefer HaSikha's Tov Shinun Aleph, Sikha of Tetzava, page 353-354. And he goes on to analyze that, the name versus essence in relationship to other people, the name versus essence in relationship to Hashem, and then goes away, coming away with, a, with the tools and methods of how you can regain and rebuild insecurity due to understanding who you are and your connection to your own, who your inner self is like and ultimately in your relationship with others and with God. Essay number two for today, for this episode. How to actually bring Mashiach. Chana Rachmani, Boston, Massachusetts, Shlucha Seminary Chayimushke Tzvat.
it begins, what on earth are we doing and how on earth do we do it? Man's search for meaning has never been a simple one. Goes on to explain. But for a Jew, it's different. A Jew's purpose is laid out for him clearly. And this is the whole purpose of man and the purpose for he, which he and the worlds were created, from Tanya, so that God should have a dwelling place here below in this world. But how can I, but seriously, how can I accomplish such a magnificent feat? I mean, for thousands of years, the Jewish people have worked tirelessly, giving up their lives for the sake of it. And they have not accomplished it. So how we, am I going to accomplish it? She continues on to explain that Chassidus empowers us, helping us understand what Gula is really all about and how we can actually make it a reality. Through understanding that Simsim Shalek Yipshute, Simsim is not literal, meaning godliness is here, there are revolutionary sikhs of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, we will learn that we are, through which we learn we are a whole lot more powerful than we think we are. It goes on, I would say, a very powerful essay. I have to commend you. And I really was taken by it because it really addresses the core mission, which is what to do to bring Mashiach. What is reality? What is revelation? The Mashiach mission. How it all happened before by Matan Teda, as the Altareb explains. How did Nachshan do it? And so can you. And going back and going down to a real practical game plan. I really say, I mean this sincerely. Excellent. I would make this a very prominent essay in all Mashiach discussions because it takes a person's taken, chassidus, and given a game plan. Learning chassidus, davening, mitzvahs, acts of goodness and kindness, how to put yourself in her words, how to create a Mashiach mentality. Right on target. I can't say enough, excellent essay. This and other essays can all be seen as they're posted on our website, meaningfullife.com slash mylife. Also, if you subscribe to our emails, we send out all the essays as they're updated, the new essays as they're posted. Okay, so well worth reading. Third essay, My Torah, Chaim Brisky, age 24, Agora Hills, California. It begins with lots of questions. We do mitzvahs every day, or at least we try to. We celebrate all the holidays and eat all the lovely kosher food that comes along with them. But do we ever take a moment to think about why, why we are doing what we are doing? For a lot of us, we grew up with Torah. We cannot think of a life without Torah and the question of why it doesn't exist, or at least doesn't feel like it really needs to be answered. So we accepted the Torah. Obviously, there are the laws that come along with it, Shabbos, kosher, and so on. But what is that what makes us different than all other nations? Is that what makes us chosen? Other nations and religions have charity, repentance, and prayer too. And goes on to discuss very fundamental questions, very well written, very well written, great writer, and discusses how in detail we can learn, we can, we can embrace Torah not just by rote, by rote, but with a whole process, with very interesting models using psychological approach on a conscious and subconscious level using action as a powerful tool. An excellent piece from Sefer Achinuch Mitzvah Tazayin. How action affects us. And the, the balance of Kabbalah Rotson and Das. Again, well worth reading this essay. And I thank you and commend you for that as well. Okay. 
With that, we conclude this special Rosh Hashanah edition. And I want to conclude, above all, from the, from the depths of my heart, <clears throat> that every one of you, individually and all of us together, should be blessed with Aksiva v'chsima teva, l'shana teva masuka, begashmis u'beruchnis u'beruchnis u'begashmis gam yochad. A blessed year, in revealed way, in everything that we need, and even beyond our needs, with nachos from our children, those that need to find a shidduch, find a shidduch, a soulmate, build healthy lives. Shalom bayis should be enhanced and grow in our lives. Abundant parnos and livelihood. Health and everything in our children, only brachas and simchas. And should finally be the gula, amitiz v'ashlema, where all these things will be fulfilled to their fullest sense of the word. And we commit, and I commit, to do my part, and we all commit to do our part, to fulfill the mission for which we were sent, to make a dirbet but specifically the mission of the Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation, Yefutzum that brings Rishachanti B'Seichem down Lamata, Basara Tvachim Mamash, the Rebbe's words, where we use every resource available, and all our skills and our own tools, to spread, to teach and spread Chesidus, in every corner of the earth, in every possible way. Today, with technology, we have literally no excuse, no limits. And as Mashiach promised the Baal Shem Tov, then will be There will not be a program next week due to Rosh Hashanah. There will be one the following week. I pre Yom Kippur, special edition. Everyone should have a good Gebenster Yar in all possible ways. Thank you.